Taunt us. Are we running back there? Do we need to start it? Is the stream running? Do we need to start it? Show off. Show off. All right. Lesson six. Salvation history. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord. All right. So by way of introduction, who am I? O Lord God. And what is my house? that you have brought me thus far. 2 Samuel 7, 18. God has certainly shown steadfast love to the house of David and to Israel. God has given David rest from his enemies on all side. Israel, a nation that began with 70 persons going down into Egypt, has multiplied into a mighty nation. They lived in a land that God promised to their forefathers and now enjoyed the unique blessing of God's presence with them, the temple that Solomon has built, everything, at least it would seem, is as it should be. There were, however, cracks under the surface, and these cracks wouldn't take long to split the nation of Israel in half. So in this lesson, we're going to study that downward spiral as Israel is split between the land of Israel and the land of Judah, uh, is captured by Assyria and by Babylon, the God of Israel still remains holy, and he still will not give his glory to another. So uh, backing up to the beginning of our study in this salvation history, tracing that line of biblical theology, uh, God's primary mandate, his covenantal uh, command to people was to be fruitful and multiply, to take dominion in the earth, that the earth might reflect the glory of God, that the whole earth might be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And his people seem like they're in a position to do that now in this nation, this nation that God is blessing. And yet Israel's idolatry is going to be found out sooner or later. All right, so from Solomon to the exile. Solomon's reign appears as if it is the high watermark of Israel's history. There's an incredible influx of wealth and there is peace throughout the land. The queen of Sheba says, your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I had heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants. You continually stand before and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and made you sit on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Uh, how can that description be immediately followed by an account of Solomon's downfall that we find in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings 10, 11? Uh, is there any indication that Solomon's reign might not be quite as glorious 
as it appears. So compare these passages. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, 9 through 17. Tim, you want to read that one for us? Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the, the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. All right, so compare that with 1 Kings 9, 15, and then 18 to 22. We're going to read that one Tuesday. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazar and Megdo, Megiddo and Gezer and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness and the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Ammonites, Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devout to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so there are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. How do you feel? You want to keep reading? Sure. All right. So two more passages here. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20 is the first one. <clears throat> when you come to the land of the, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may need you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he, said, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all, read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that, the, that his heart may not be lifted up above his, above his brother's, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to do to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And then 1 Kings 10, <clears throat> 23 through 11, 3. Thus King Solomon excelled all 
the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the whole earth sought the present of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments of myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the, as the, of the Shephelah. And king's, salt, and king's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. And the king's traders received, from, received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now the kings, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to their to the people of Israel, "You shall not enter into marriage with them; neither shall they live shall they with you, for people of Israel. You shall not enter, just read that, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods." Solomon clung to the, these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. All right, so thinking about what we just read, what, what would we say about Solomon's reign as king? What are some positives? What are some negatives? Well, he didn't follow the law. He didn't follow the law. How so? Yep, don't have a lot of wives, and he did. I think 700 counts as a lot, yeah. personally. I mean, I don't want to judge. He also wasn't supposed to go back to uh, Egypt for horses and that. Yep, yep, back to Egypt. Uh, what's that? Yep, amassing lots of wealth for himself. Yeah, the fact that his wives were foreign wives is a second strike against him in that same category. In fact, exactly what had been warned, that they will turn your heart away, is what we're told ended up happening in the end. So we see sort of a mixture there of, of God's blessing, as well as things that will be a significant problem in the future. The cracks appearing in Solomon's kingship suddenly rupture into a massive rift between him and Israel's God. The account of his sin is explicit. 1 Kings 11.6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholeheartedly follow the Lord as his father David had done. What will be the consequence of Solomon's fall? 1 Kings 11.9-13, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because it's hard to turn away from the Lord, the God of Israel, and he appeared to him twice. He commanded him concerning the thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have kept my commandment, that you have not kept my commandment or my statutes, and as I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. That's similar language, isn't it? We heard with Saul. And give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of your hand, the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So we see 
that this account is both similar and different to the Lord's pronouncement over Saul that we found in 1 Samuel 15. The king's disobedience meant that the kingdom cannot be established with him. But for the sake of David, the kingdom will not be entirely taken away. Why? Because God had promised that someone will sit on that throne of David. Uh, there will be a reunification to come. Uh, and yet there's also a significant physical tearing away that's coming. It's God's judgment mingled with God's mercy. So, yeah, Josh. I was going to say something that I was thinking about as we were reading through that is, you know, Saul, or not Saul, Solomon was basically kind of, he'd been propped up as the wisest man to ever live, right? I mean, almost historically. Yep. And like, even he couldn't keep the commandments of God, which is a stark reminder of why we hate Christ so much. Yeah, absolutely. Was, absolutely. If the wisest person who ever lived can't be smart enough to keep God's law. How much more do us dummies need Christ? <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank goodness. All right. So the kings who succeed Solomon display a pattern of disobedience similar to what we've already seen in the book of Judges. So 1 Kings 11, 4 through 6. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from God, uh, away after their gods, and his heart was not only was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. 1 Corinthians 11, therefore, uh, this is 11 through 13, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes that I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom away and give it to one of your servants. We read that earlier, this promise of God removing him and his followers from the throne. First Corinthians 11, first Corinthians, first Kings 11, 29 to 39. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah and Shil the Shilonite, found him on the road, and Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment. The two of them were alone in the open country. The not. Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon. I will give you 10 tribes, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel." Because they have forsaken me, they have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David my, his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand. So God promises, I'm going to remove it. He promises to Jeroboam, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, really interesting, because of what we know about Jeroboam, which is... He is going to be the, uh, he's sort of the springboard for all the bad kings that are to come. Uh, and yet God is faithful in keeping his word. First, first Kings 14, 7 through 10. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I've exalted you from among the people, I've made you the leader over my people Israel. I've tore the kingdom away from the house of David to give it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with his whole heart, doing that which is right in my eyes. But you have done evil 
above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon your house, O Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. I don't know who's going around burning up dung, but God said it's that bad. I'm burning you out. 1 Kings 15, now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah and the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father had done before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David was his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him in all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. First Kings 15, 11 and 12. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David, his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes. I always think that's good. If we can get rid of the male cult prostitutes, probably a good thing. Out of the land and removed the idols that his father had made. So David's shadow is also cast over the book of 2 Kings. Uh, there's a whole string of these. Tim, you want to read those 2 Kings 8 and then 14 and then 16. In the fifth year of Joram, Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots and rose, up, rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Second Kings 14, 3-6 And Messiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Yet not like David his father, he did in all things as Joash his father had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not put to death, shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. But each one shall die for his own sin. Second Kings 16, 2-4 Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he, did not, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, and his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. 
and a sacrifice and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So we see this echo of David, even, even generations down where uh, they're compared to him. They, they did what was right, but not like David. Or uh, they followed after that, or they were wicked and uh, rejected, not like David. So David's shadow is rather large, even over generations of kings to come. So God sends Israel and Judah into exile. Why did God send them into exile? Because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord. They feared other gods. They walked in the customs of pagan nations. They practiced idolatry. They broke God's law. So why did God send Judah into exile? Because of its sin, culminating in the sin of Manasseh, which included defiling the temple with idolatry and shedding innocent blood. After the account of Israel's exile, somewhere around 721 B.C., and Judah's destruction and exile, 586 B.C., uh, here is how the book of 2 Kings ends. Chapter 25, 27 to 30. And the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for this allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So what do you think? Does that sound like a positive or a negative ending to the book of Second Kings? Maybe the most impressive answer of the day. Sort of a Empire Strikes Back kind of feel. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a mixture of both positive and negative. Uh, the Davidic king is seated above the, above the seats of other kings. Uh, the line has been preserved. That's a positive, right? It could have been anyone associated as a descendant of David we're going to wipe out. Yet we don't see that. But the king's needs are met by who? A foreign pagan king, not God. This is not the kind of dominion that was envisioned uh, in the Davidic covenant. Rather than reigning in God as God's vice regent in dominion and dependence upon God, uh, he's now just sitting under immediate dependence of the Babylonian king, trusting him for his daily provision. So the canonical order of the Old Testament in our English Bibles is different from the order of these books in the Hebrew collection that they would have had in the first century A.D. So our English Bibles, following the Septuagint, place Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. The Hebrew collections put Second Chronicles at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, this becomes interesting when we look at how the book of Second Chronicles ends and compare that to how the first book of the New Testament begins the so-called Jewish gospel of Matthew. So consider in the Hebrew alignment, it's going to end with this. Second Chronicles 36, 22 to 23. 
Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might make a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. <clears throat> Whoever is among you of all the people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Matthew 28, 16-20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what are some of the similarities that you hear in there? Uh, how, how could we see Matthew as even modeling at the end of Second Chronicles uh, what was being promised and foretold in there? Yep, yep. Both end with that sending out. And both begin with uh, the reason that there's power to send them out. The God of heaven has given me all authority. Like the God of heaven gave me authority over all the nations. Then we see Christ standing on the mountain saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. Yeah. It is striking when you think about it in that kind of a context of the, the different order of the Hebrew scriptures that all of the book of Matthew would then be setting up this moment. Like it, it's trumpeting, like, okay, here's the lineage of Christ in Matthew 1 as he's coming. It's making the argument uh, that he's this Messiah, he's this king, uh, heralding him to the Jewish people that he might stand and say, I'm the one who had the authority. This has all been pointing towards me. So thinking of salvation history, Israel plummets from the peak of her prosperity in Solomon's reign to the depths of despair in the exile. The exile is God's judgment upon sin and Israel, her sin, which has persisted since the day of the Exodus. This downward spiral is due to Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant. And this unfaithfulness is most often led by Israel's king. All right. So God sends the prophets. Uh, the Old Testament prophets play a critical role in God's dealing with Israel. Their mission is first seen in the book of Judges. So Judges 6, 6 through 10. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove you out. I drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. All right, so uh, 
sort of examine the role of the prophets according to these passages. We're going to read 2 Kings 17. And then at the end, it, let's think together on the question, what was the role of the prophets? There's a whole string of those here. You want to read those for us, Tim? 2 Kings 17, 13-14, and 22-23. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. <clears throat> but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Verse 22. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did, they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was ex exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. <clears throat> Jeremiah seven, twenty-one through 26 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and, they, and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Jeremiah thirty-five fifteen. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way. And amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your, to your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. Zechariah 1, 3-6 Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom your former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? All right, so what, what do you see as the role of the prophets that these passages kind of bear out for us? Yeah, declaring God's word. Turn back now. Repent. Yeah, calling to repentance seems a rather clear. To remind the people of Israel of the covenants. Yeah, remind them of the covenants. To warn them of what might happen if they. Warn them of consequences that could come. They're doing essentially the same thing that God has done. If you think about the covenant structure that we've seen, where God says. I am the Lord your God, do this. He gives the commands, gives the stipulations and blessings and curses. Uh, now they are standing in as God's representatives saying on behalf of God to the people, here it is. So in the past we saw God coming specifically and speaking to 
Adam, Abraham, Noah, David. And now these prophets are speaking the same thing, but they're God's representatives speaking to the people on his behalf. So there's a number of messages that the prophets spoke to the people. One of the central ones can be discerned in the following verses. How you feeling, Tim? You want to keep going? Sure. All right. Hosea 6 is where we'll start. Hosea 6, 4 through 7. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt false faithlessly with me. Isaiah 1, 10-17 Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Saddam. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of the lambs or of goats. When you, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of, be of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 22, 1-5 Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the kings of Judah and speak there this, there, this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you, and your servants, and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Micah 6, 6-8 With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands, thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In Zechariah 7, 4-14 then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land of the, and the priests, when you, fought, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? 
Were not these the words of the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you des devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention, and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears, that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts, and had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the, all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Right, so what are, the, what are the common themes that we hear in those? What, what's the prophetic messages? Partial obedience is okay. false obedience. Partial obedience is not getting the job done. It is, it is not obedience at all. He wants their heart. Yeah, good. The sacrifices that he had commanded them to do are not pleasing to him. Yeah, so the, the religious... Ritual sacrifices, uh, the religious uh, obedience. So in this last one, I mentioned fasting. It, the very ways that they had to worship God, he says, are not acceptable. Why? Like, what, what's what's the main reason? Their hearts are in the right place. Yeah, hearts are in the wrong place. That's, they're actually pursuing the wrong thing. It, it's some sort of... Uh, religious obedience that they're doing for their own sake it's something within themselves not actually looking and trusting in the lord uh, it's clear from what we've studied that israel did not heed the voice of the lord speaking through the prophets therefore this is god's response jeremiah 25 4 through 11 you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear although the lord persistently sent to you all the servants and the prophets saying turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds, dwell in the land that the Lord your God has given you and your fathers uh, from old and forever. Do not go after the gods and serve them and worship them. Provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with your works and with your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send you I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants against all those surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction. I will make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting des desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone, the lighting of the lamp, this whole land shall be a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve, serve the king of Babylon 70 years. <clears throat> Jeremiah 44, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is verse 2, you have seen all the disaster I brought upon Jerusalem, upon the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation, no one dwells in them. Because of the evil they committed, provoking me to anger in 
that they went to make offerings to serve other gods and they that they knew not neither they nor you nor your fathers yet i persistently sent to you all my servants the prophets saying oh do not do this abomination that i hate but they did not listen and incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. They became a waste and a desolation as it is to this day. Lamentations 2. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the walls of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line, did not restrain his hand. Isaiah 29. Uh, Astonish yourselves, be astonished, blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers, the visions of all who became, who become to you like the words of the book. It is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, read this. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And they said, uh, and when they gave the book to the one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot. And the Lord said, because the people drew near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and the fear of the Lord and the commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things for this people. Not wonderful like, oh, isn't that wonderful? Like wonderful where you stand in wonder and look at it. Amazement. With wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. Micah 3, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from him from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. And Amos 8, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine for bread, but a th nor a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to North to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That's back to that thing of, I will close the book and they will not be able to read it. So Israel's heart is hardened against God. It is turned towards other gods. And God has basically said the consequence of that is no more. No more prophets, no more calling, no more speaking I'm going to leave you to your own devices and it'll bring destruction, desolation. Uh, the prophets spoke not only of death and doom. While they did chastise Israel for their disobedience, they warned her of God's judgment. They also spoke words of hope. Some of the richest verses in all the Old Testament testify to that great work that God would do in restoring his people in the land. That's just amazing to me that, that God could on one hand say, you have sinned. You have not repented of your sin. You've trusted someone else. I'm done with you. I'm going to wipe you out as a desolation. And yet there's a faithful remnant. Yet there's hope. Yet I will raise up a root from that stump that I have cut off. Uh, we've already read in previous lessons some of these promises of a future king in the line of David. Uh, we'll look at some of those passages and articulate additional promises from God to Israel despite her unfaithfulness and treachery. Amos 9. Tim, you want to read this chunk of scriptures here? Amos 9 is where we start. 11 through 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the day of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, 
and the treader of grapes and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it i will restore the fortunes of my people israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit i will plant them on their land plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that i have given them says the lord your god isaiah 35 1 through 10 in the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the like the cro crocus it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing the glory of lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of carmel and sharon they shall see the glory of the lord the majesty of our god strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees say to those who have an anxious heart be strong fear not behold your god will come with the vengeance with the recompense of god he will come and save you then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they where they lie down the grass shall become reeds of and rushes and highway shall be and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it it shall belong to those who walk on the way even if, the, if even if they are fools they shall not go astray no lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it they shall not be found there but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing singing shall sighing shall flee away isaiah 56 6 through 8 and the foreigners who join themselves to the lord to minister to him to love the name of the lord and to be his servants everyone who keeps the sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant these i will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples the lord god who gathers the outcasts of israel declares i will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered joel 2 23-27 be glad o children of zion and rejoice in the lord your god for he has given the early rain for your vindication he has poured down for you abundant rain the early and the latter rain as before the threshing floors shall be full of grain the vats shall overflow with wine and oil i'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper the destroyer and the cutter my great army which i sent among you you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the lord your god who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame you shall know that i am in the midst of israel and that i am the lord your god and there is no none else and my people shall never again be put to shame i once heard a uh pastor giving a sermon series based on this passage in Joel. Um, and it was basically, okay, based on what should we be able to demand of God uh, that he 
Actually, it wasn't even demand of God that we demand of Satan that he restore what the the years the locust have eaten. Like, okay, for what can you demand twenty fold? For what can you demand thirty fold? For what can you demand a hundred fold? And it, and it was this whole elongated thing, and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not the point of this. That's that was just absolutely yeah. terrible theology. Uh, so what is the point? What what are the covenant promises that you heard in those passages Tim just read to us? See if we can remember just a couple of them. Yeah, a, a not only a positive fulfillment of the covenant, but an ultimate fulfillment of the covenant. Like it will be fully done. What else? Yep, yep, restoration from what should have been to what God's plan always has been. And then there's also go back to the falling away from him ever again. Yeah, yeah, there's no there's no more falling away, there's no more sin, there's no more sighing or singing, as the case may be. Uh, there's like it there's a permanent end to it, which is one of the reasons why uh, in that day we all should have known that that preacher was wrong. Uh, because we still live in a fallen world. So we can't, we can't claim to be on that end of the eternal spectrum when we still live in a fallen world with sin around us. Uh, and yet there's a promise that, again, Israel's going to possess the other nations. There's going to be prosperity. That There's fertility. There's joy. There's safety, security. There's no shame. There's salvation from God. Physical healing, moral purity. The ingathering of Israel and the Gentiles together, and there's the presence of God. I mean, that just sounds like today, doesn't it? <laughs> no, not even close. So why might God have sent prophets instead of teaching the people through the priests? So in other words, what would be missing in redemptive history without the ministry of the prophets? we have the, the pastors and we have the missionaries we have those different offices of the spirit the prophets were called to a different way of speaking God's truth than the priests were mm -hmm. the, the prophets were always more um, Jerseyan if you will they're always more direct and to the point and harsh Okay. Versus the priests who were um, more um, almost pastor-like toward the people. Yeah. You also have, <clears throat> I think this is what's most commonly put with prophets, is the uh, prophecy that's given. Um, so you see this confirmation of God's sovereignty and um, covenant promises kept by 
prophesy through the prophets of um, both what's to come that's positive and negative based upon the warnings. Um, it also it's also nice because God literally gives them <clears throat> a foretelling and warning of what will happen if you don't do this. He's trying to give them an opportunity to do the thing that they they should do. Um, so in one hand, it proves that God is who he says he is because um, all the words that are spoken come true, come to pass. But also it's a gift of grace and love and mercy to, to warn them in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And I think the priests are very concerned with the here and now, whereas the prophets are concerned with the past and future. Yeah, yeah. Hey, my, my mind immediately goes to uh, like what's going on during these books of prophets. Like we, we see before they leave, and then we see them in exile. So there is, there is a certain aspect of, like God doesn't speak through the priests in this time because, number one, they could be in exile during this period or about to with the case of like Isaiah where they're going to be taken away here. But it's like I think of when I think of priests, I don't think anywhere near like a pastor of today. I think of the men who would have the Pentateuch and they would do the work of atonement for the people of God. And so there's there's a lot of like their job wasn't just to give good sermons to people. Like they were killing animals for the sake of sacrifice that God had told them to do. And the prophets, they come and they are visibly different. Like mm -hmm. he, what Isaiah, he does some crazy stuff. Like he's naked for what, like a couple of years. But like he is, he is there as a vision and just to say the will of God in the present that's going to happen in the future, so you're going to get kicked out of here. Yeah. Eventually, what we see in, I think it was like Isaiah 35, where it's like, you'll come back and everything will flourish, and I will bring you back here. The priests didn't necessarily work in that prophetic way. They would do the work of atonement, and what we had seen them do is not lead the people well anyways, because they're about to go into exile. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's, I think that's a, a simple reason why the priests were not. So it's, it's a good sort of speculative thought that there's, there's a difference, and, and we've kind of brought that out, there, there's a difference in responsibility and teaching style. So the priest dealing with the, the hands-on day-to-day things, uh, whether it's sacrifice or sort of taking care of what's happening in that whole Levitical order. Uh, but the prophets sort of come in as this wild card. They are, they're not just... Uh, academically saying, here's here's what the book of the law says. They're saying, here's what the Lord says. The, here's what the giver of the law says. And so it, it reaches past the immediate dealing into ultimate, here's what's coming. And it's sort of a, a backwards and forwards. Here's reaching into the past. Here's the sin that has brought us here. And here is what God says is coming. So I, I think without that, we would tend to miss the voice of God in the whole thing. And man, how quickly do we just degenerate into some form of legalism? I mean, you look at, at Orthodox Judaism today where you get a couple thousand late years later and you've missed the Messiah and it's all about the rules. That's all it is. And it, it doesn't even matter if you really believe it. It doesn't matter if your heart is moved by it. Uh, 
for much of Judaism today, uh, it is it is only a legalistic religion, and not there's there's no acknowledging of we're actually looking through this to the God who's given us His law, which is just sad. I think the prophets push us in that direction. All right, so salvation history. Pull that over. God sent prophets to Israel to remind them of the covenant. Their message was often to expose Israel's sin, to call them to true obedience. Israel, however, would not listen, and so God brought the exile that he had prophesied and decreed a lack of prophetic words to come. I'm closing the book. I'm closing their mouth. There's going to be a time of silence. All right, so let's look at new covenant and return from exile. Then we'll eat lunch here pretty quick. There are many, many texts in the Old Testament that reassure Israel of God's unending love and unfailing purpose to bring glory to himself. All right, so let's look at a couple here. Uh, these passages, perhaps more than others, express the provision of a new covenant that God is making with Israel. So Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28, Therefore I say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord your God, is it, not, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, by which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate my holiness and my great name, which you've profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations that and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water. You should be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land I will give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. All right, so just looking at that one first, how does, how does that passage deal with the core problem that Israel had throughout her history with regards to how she worshiped God? Yeah, heart of stone. If the fundamental problem and the reason God did not accept their worship was their hardness of heart. What does God say he's going to do about that? I'm going to do it. Right. I'm, I'm going to be the one who gives you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. Yeah. And cause you to walk. How great is that news? I mean, think about previous, the, the experience of God's people worshiping God, walking with God. Uh, we only find in the Old Testament rare occasions where God's Spirit is either with, upon, or even filling someone. Filling someone super rare. Uh, but it's generally His Spirit going with them. And it's that general totality. Like we talked about, uh, God is relating to them as a corporate covenant people. And yet He says, I'm going to put my Spirit in you. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. <laughs> I love that. I, I, we read it earlier. Uh, I will incline your hearts towards me. You're leaning the other direction, and I'm going to cause you to lean towards me. All right, here's the second text. 
pointing towards a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, by this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, hear that, that shooting forward language, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. All right, so with whom will this covenant be made? Yeah, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A great restoration of that which was splintered and then wiped away. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them. Uh, so what is the primary contrast that we see in these two passages between the old covenant and the new covenant? What's that? Yeah, rather than God's law being written on some tablets of stone or some scrolls that are sort of tucked away and guarded, I'm going to write it on the heart of every believer. And rather than it being this uh, corporate identification with God, it's a one-on-one, -on -one, I'm calling you into relationship with me. All right. Uh, what are, what are some of the new provisions of the new covenant that you hear in there? I mean, there are provisions of like what's given to that man. Yeah. Forgiveness. Yeah, forgiveness. And it's not just a temporary forgiveness. It's definite and perfect forgiveness. Good. They shall all know me. Yeah. So it, we no longer have a mixed crowd in here of those who are, are Jews by birth, Jews by circumcision. We have all of them shall know me. So much so that I love that he says, no one's going to teach their neighbor or their brother anymore saying, know the Lord, because they all do. Anything else? My favorite one in there, and we kind of touched on it just a second ago, is where God says, I'm going to cause you to keep my commandments. It, it's the, the power to obey. That God has given us his spirit that enables us to say no to ungodliness. Right? It, it's by his spirit that we're able to put to death the sin within us. It, these are new covenant promises foreshadowed in the old covenant. So as we continue through looking at this, we'll come back to these two foundational Old Testament texts. After years of exile have been completed, some of the exiles do return to Israel in waves. So the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe that situation. Is that the ultimate fulfillment of this glorious picture of restoration? No. No, it's, it's waves beginning it's coming it's coming uh, Ezra 9 Nehemiah 9 shed some light on this issue uh, Ezra 9 is mostly Ezra's prayer of confession 
after learning about impurity in the priesthood, his prayer makes clear that Israel is still caught in her guilt. So it's not in this place of perfect uh, obedience and perfect forgiveness. No need to teach anyone. Know the Lord because everyone does. Uh, and that the people of Israel are slaves in their own land. Nevertheless, Ezra recognizes that Israel deserves even worse than they have experienced of their sins. Likewise, Nehemiah 9 also states that the nation in his day has continued the pattern of disobedience that characterized the former generations, even though they're back, right? Even though God has restored us to this place, and yet we see the same sin, the same problems holding on. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi also describe this post-exilic situation from the prophetic stance. So post Post-exile, they are back, restored into the land, and yet things are not fixed. Tim, you want to read those passages for us? Haggai 2, 2-5. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing, nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Malachi 1, 6-10 a son honors his father, and his servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying, The Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. It's a very stark language, and I, I think it maybe is an appropriate aside here. Um, in thinking of God doing this, God calling a people for his own namesake, God establishing within the people uh, of those whom he has saved and redeemed his own glory, for the sake of the world around to see. And then he says, you're coming to my table wrongly. Now this is the Old Testament table of sacrifice, but he's like, you're, you're profaning it by the way that you're sacrificing and pulling that sort of theological thread into the New Testament as we come to the table of the Lord, not sacrificing anything, but remembering, commemorating Christ's sacrifice once and for all. And yet, those words, oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors, one who would guard the table and say, absolutely not. <laughs> we, we are not going to come to God uh, in a way that dishonors him 
in what we claim to be worshiping. And I, I just think it's an important thing uh, for us to think about. Like it is, it is a big deal when God's people today even go through that, that ritualistic form of coming to the table of the Lord, that we guard the table. And that is, that is not the majority consensus in modern, I was going to say evangelical. It might be an evangelical uh, at least in modern Protestant churches, that's not the unanimous consensus. Uh, we ran into a thing a couple years ago where I uh, actually got in kind of a, it wasn't a heated argument because I knew I was right. So there was no sense getting upset about it. Uh, but with one of the local pastors in Shipshe who was trying to make the case that we need to offer communion to everyone who comes, including non-Christians, so they'll know that God loves them and accepts them. Uh, and I pointed him towards 1 Corinthians 11, that you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Uh, could have pointed him to this, but I, I think we need to be diligent. Now, we also need to be loving. I, I hope that what we do on a Sunday uh, is considerate to people saying, uh, this is for your own good. Please don't come. If you're not a Christian, please don't come to the table and eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Don't proclaim something that is wrong. And I, I think there's a whole other layer above that that Malachi speaks to. Uh, don't claim to worship God in a way that he says he does not accept. Oh, that God would raise up people who would guard that table. Uh, how much more when it's not just our sacrifice, but the sacrifice of Christ offered on our behalf. We need to be careful with that. So anyways, just file that one away in your mind. I think that's an important principle for us. Uh, it is clear that according to the post-exilic prophets that there is still hope. Now, not everybody in, after the exile, not everybody's made it back to the land yet, right? They're still scattered among the nations. This isn't the ultimate forever fulfillment of this. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are all chock full of divine reassurances and comforting promises for those who trust in the Lord. It appears as if the return from captivity has not brought the full restoration that God promised, and so Israel waits. Now, does that mean that God failed to keep his promise? Well, no. No, because we know, thanks be to God, that there was more coming. By the way, if, if it hadn't happened, we wouldn't be included in it. Like we would have just been the outsiders forever shut out as the ethnic people of Israel enjoy that perfect forever in the promised land. So that leads us to this intertestimonial period where between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have the time roughly from 425 BC to about 5 BC. It's a time of waiting and groaning and confusion and trying things in human strength that just lead to more subjection and futility. So again, has God forgotten his people, right? If, if he promised there's going to come this full restoration, has God forgotten them? Has he forsaken them? And I, I just want us to sit with that question for a second because it's really easy for us to unanimously say, no, no course not only i love that in scripture and we find this a couple times uh, god leads his people into egypt for their deliverance and they end up slaves for how long 400. about 400 years 
Uh, God says there's going to come a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. And now there's silence from heaven for how long? About 400 years. It's easy for us to go, of course God didn't abandon us. Of course we're not left on our own. And then we look at our lives. And if things go on for four solid days, we go, this is really bad. If they go on for four solid years, say one political administration, we go, I think God has forsaken us. And then because we're really helpful, thoughtful Christians, we say things like this to our ungodly neighbors. Well, it's because you removed God from schools and therefore God isn't in this at all anymore. He has left us. You're on your own. Oh, it's just foolishness. Like that's, that, that's a relatively limited amount of time. That's probably been only 40 years that that's been going on. What about for 400? Like what kind of memes would be putting out then? Like, of course God isn't delivering in America. It's been 400 years of godlessness. He left you a long time ago. Jesus lives in Canada. Probably not. Canada is even worse. You know, I, I don't know. But we are really quick to be dismissive. Like uh, we, have, we have been abandoned by God in this. And I, I just want to keep putting in front of us, 400 years is a long time. That's a lot of generations to live with frustration and futility. And every day of that was part of God's plan. Every day of that was pointing towards a great redemption that's coming. Even though at times it appears like God hasn't kept his promise. Israel is ruled by a succession of pagan kings and kingdoms. In 167 BC, one pagan king, Antiochus Epiphanius, even had the audacity to establish the worship of himself in Israel's temple. I, hey, thanks for building me a nice building for everybody to come worship me, everybody. Uh, the faithful rise up and break the yoke of foreign oppressors against the odds. The great event is memorialized in the Jewish calendar as the celebration of Hanukkah, uh, the, the whole Maccabean revolt. Even this great victory over hostile nations does not usher in some new golden era of the Davidic kingdom, right? It, it doesn't bring it, and yet they're looking for it. What is everybody looking for when Jesus comes as the Messiah, as the anointed one? Is this the time when you're going to establish your kingdom? Right? They still have the same question. They're looking for the same thing. So Israel sinks back into patient expectation, waiting for her covenant God to establish the kingdom. The book of Daniel addresses this intervening period, and uh, we'll read this and then ask the question, what historical empires correspond to the first, second, and third, fourth kingdoms? As if you know them off the top of your head. If you don't, you're going to get a D minus. But Tim, you want to read that, and then we'll pause for lunch. Daniel 2, 31 through 45. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out, by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces then the iron the clay the bronze the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors 
and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand has he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet of and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. All right, so thinking about the correspondence, beginning with that Babylonian empire, and I was trying to find the picture. Uh, Daniel and I went to Toronto a few years ago. We went into the Toronto History Museum. I don't know what it was called, something like that. Uh, and walked through one of the things. They had a, a whole Babylonian section in there. And in there, they had these two tiles that were uh, a lion. And the lion was probably about from me to the door over there. So stood about that tall. Uh, and it was a mosaic into this blue tile that had been in the palace of Babylon in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar that was in his throne room which is crazy when you think as Daniel stood saying this to King Nebuchadnezzar, he would have seen that lion. I was trying to find the picture to show it to you because I just stood there for a long time going like, ha, 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 this is awesome. <laughs> like this physical remnant of it. And yet God says, all right, so great king of Babylon, you're, you're the most powerful. You're the king of gold. But there's coming another thing that the Persians are going to come in. Uh, and then you have each one as you descend down this sort of statue becomes lesser and lesser and lesser until you get all the way down to the feet of clay that are broken. And uh, all the way down to the Roman kingdom, uh, which is broken and falls apart and, and shatters Ironically, the Roman kingdom is also the prototype for our democracy today, which democracies generally don't outlive about 200 years. And we're at 200 years and counting. So, uh, you know, our hope is not in the feet of clay of America or any other 
thing. The, the whole point of this is that the God of heaven has put you in power for a while, but the rock that breaks you will become a great mountain. And it, it is a beautiful picture of the fact that God's kingdom... Did you try again? No, you just be quiet. It, it's a great picture that God's kingdom is not only coming, but it is expanding and it rules over all other kingdoms. All right, let's leave it there and we'll pause for lunch and we'll pick it up immediately following that. <laughs>